Hi, and welcome to For Whom the Cell Tolls. It's been a while, but you're, I'm your host, Keenan. Um, today, Scout Pomeranian is not joining me, but one of my great co-workers is Katie Peterson. So she works at Gustavus Adolphus College with me, and we both teach undergraduate biology. Oh yeah, and um, so Katie, I'll allow you to kind of introduce yourself and kind of go over your research and what's exciting that, um, you know, that you study. So again, my name is Katie Peterson, uh, and I am actually a Gustavus alum, so it's been really exciting to be back at Gustavus in a different capacity uh, as an instructor for this year. Uh, my research is kind of all over the board, I would say, uh, but generally falls into evolutionary biology um, and kind of organismal biology. So I'm really interested in how creatures that we don't often think about are experiencing and kind of navigating the landscape around us. Um, and so I do that um, kind of using island biogeography and a naturally fragmented system uh, to hopefully extrapolate um, maybe what will happen potentially or what could happen to improve restoration efforts um, because the world around us is starting to kind of look and mirror um, the landscape that I study uh, in southern Idaho. Awesome. And this will be a very good, like, fun chance to kind of have a discussion about how, like, although I research something very molecular, um, you know, this, the listeners of this podcast know that I, I'm very, like, fond of evolution ecology and, like, looking into, like, larger systems and seeing where the, kind of that, um, kind of that territory kind of melts together and that's super exciting and fun. So this pod, this uh, episode will kind of detail Katie and I's journey a little bit, how our research is, like, super fun when it collides how we ended up actually kind of along a teaching path, which is, I always think, really exciting. And then we'll address some student questions that we got from Gustavus students, so that'll be good. Um, so for me, I can just start, and uh, like my research is pretty much the same boring stuff that we've talked about this whole time, but for those that are new uh, listening from Gustavus, I mainly take, uh, basically, sequence DNA from tumors in patients, and that's what we do at the Mayo Clinic, and I make sure that, or I at least designate, what kind of therapies are going to be the best treatment options based on the genetics in the tumor. This is how we can personalize medicine and basically further patient progress and survival better than just a single therapy that is just going to, you know, hopefully work for everybody, but in all likelihood not work for everybody. This way we can save patients a lot of hardship and improve, you know, progression rates and all kinds of stuff. I also work really closely doing a lot of cellular mechanism studies where I go kind of deeper into the cells and mess with things and see if that makes them angrier, sadder, depending on the cancer type and cell, and see how we can take advantage of those mechanisms in therapy. Um, so one of the exciting kind of uh, crossovers that I always introduce in a lot of my classes is that when you have a tumor, it is very much kind of like an invasive species. It has its own separate genetics, it's not behaving correctly in that environment, and it is kind of wreaking havoc. And I think, I can't remember what the rule is, you can help me on this, Katie. Um, there's some, I, I think there's like a stipulation in ecology that says like invasive species are like almost unstoppable or something, or you can never eliminate them 100%. Uh, yeah, I mean, in some cases, partially just that kind of release, right? There's nothing that's kind of keeping them in check um, right. is one thing. Um, and generally their reproduction is also uh quite what's the word uh uh they're able to reproduce quickly too right, so i guess yeah. that's kind of the other side of it too it's trying to um maintain them yeah no and it's super 
it's super fun to like watch well no it's not fun sorry i always do that on this podcast where i'm like interested in something and i say like oh this is fun no it's not um so it may, i mean it makes it tough and especially when you you know put those two sciences together you can see kind of the daunting challenge both types of science are up against whenever you are looking either at something that's invasive or an environment that is going to change and make a better opportunity for something that can survive generally, for example, versus something that can only survive specifically. Um, and then Katie, you kind of work on, you kind of work on generalist specifics, right? Yep. Yeah. So for my research, uh, I study both uh, plants and also um, specific groups of spiders because I'm interested in the community level of things. And so the spiders that I'm uh, talking about right now are the jumping spiders. And so they're the really cute ones that I'm sure you've all heard of or seen the really funny videos of them. Um, doing their kind of weird dancing behaviors. Um, but the jumping spiders, um, in my research, I use them um, to kind of be a proxy for something that would be considered a generalist. So they're kind of like the cats of the spider world, and they're actively seeking prey. They have really good eyesight, and they're walking around. So I'd say they're, you know, a generalist in that they can find prey that, you know, that they're not relying on anything else. Um, and the other group of spiders that I study are the crab spiders. And so they lie in... Um, wait for things to come to them so they're more of an ambush predator and so they're relying essentially on the vegetation around them to be able to camouflage onto them so crab spiders can actually change colors which is crazy um and so these uh crab spiders kind of are specialized in that um, their ability to essentially get prey um, relies on the vegetation around them awesome and um one thing that always interested me about that and i i wondered if you ever got this question is would do people ever ask like well is the generalist species just better then is that like do you ever get that and it's like and then how yeah. how does somebody simple like me asking that question how would you like help help them understand no, i mean i think like evolutionarily if you're thinking about this as soon as you start down a path where you're specializing your chances of extinction or essentially your life getting harder kind of mm -hmm. increases right because right. you're getting more tied to specific resources um, you know, whatever they are that you're specializing on. And so, you know, a benefit would be, oh, now they're able to camouflage, so they have this kind of specialized response, you know, to this, you know, environment around them. Uh, but then, like where I work, I have a pretty barren lava flows where there's not really vegetation. And so the cost of that kind of specialization for those crab spiders is they're not going to be accessible in that other landscape. And so I think just in general, anytime you start really focusing and specializing on things and creating those really important ties, um, it can, <laughs> in the long run, um, it might not uh, work very well <laughs> in yeah. a changing landscape. Because that was, it's almost like a risk reward, right? Like if you specialize mm -hmm. into a niche, then you're going to reap all those benefits. But if the niche mm -hmm. goes away, then mm -hmm. you're completely out of mm -hmm. luck, yeah. It sounds like the high risk, high reward type of thinking that usually gets me into trouble with just anything. <laughs> like, yeah. can I, can I make this exit or can I make this red light even when the reward is nothing? So, um, but yeah, I mean, that's something that, and I, I've shared this with Katie before, how excited I always get at the evolution ecology section, even though I'm a molecular person. Um, I do have so many students, well, we both probably have students that both reject both of our arenas and they're like, get me out of here. Like, like we were talking about students that we both had, I think students that are like, I just cannot stand cell biology. It's so boring. They're just cells. And then I have students that are like, ecology just troubles me. I don't like Hardy Weinberg. I'm scared. And this is mm -hmm. terrible. And I'm always just like, no, 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 it's all fun. Like, this is so good. Um, yeah. 
I mean, it's hard because yeah. obviously we chose our career paths because we're passionate about them, and it's hard for us to understand sometimes why, you know, the people we're talking to are also not super excited about, <laughs> you know, what we are. And I always think that's fun and interesting because it really pushes you outside of your box to kind of figure out how you can relate and kind of make them care, right. you know, about what you're doing. No, no, and I, I always, yeah, try and look back to when I was an undergrad and, like, when, like, the light bulb would sometimes go off for me was... um you know, when I'd hear, like, put something together, I was like, oh my god, is that true? Um, you know, and that's, and I think, you know, hearing your work was so exciting for me, because I was like, oh my god, like, you'll actually watch those species go away each time one of those areas essentially shifts toward, um, you know, the changing climate, and it's, you'll actually, have you actually had certain study spots, for example, that you've studied for years, and then the next summer, maybe they're gone, or... No, so for my work, I I did three field seasons um, in the summer. Two of them are ones where I was actually going into the islands of vegetation, so the kapukas that are surrounded by lava. So I have, like, two seasons worth of data. Um, and there were a few kapukas that I went into both years because I wanted to get kind of that comparison, and I didn't see anything striking in that year uh, difference. Um, but one of the things, you know, going back to when you're talking about like invasive species um something that's interesting in so sorry i realized i never said so i work at craters of the moon national monument and preserve in southern idaho um so if you've never heard of it google it it's a crazy landscape reminds me of the martian um and so what's interesting is uh researchers in the past were looking at plant communities down there as well and trying to look at um you know invasive species and these islands that i go into some of them are more isolated than others and they're actually finding that the kapukas that were closer to um, the railroads had a lot more invasive species, which makes sense. But until you're actually out there, like kind of seeing the landscape and really putting that information together, it's not something that, you know, you would normally think about in this landscape that has lava all around that these, you know, invasive quote unquote species are still able to disperse into these pretty isolated systems um, just because of the proximity to um, the railroad down there. So I, I, I don't doubt over time there's going to be uh, changes there. Okay. And because the lava erupts there roughly every 2,000 years, like, you know, every 2,000 years there's some sort of change in that system um, that's applying pressure, you know. Right. Lava's flowing around, that's going to increase the heat and, you know, <laughs> things will burn. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there's constant changes, but it's on this time scale that we're not able to see. Okay. No, and that... That makes sense. I didn't realize it was that easy to just transport, like, it's just seeds or something flying off the train and dispersing. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Makes it, it's kind yeah, of... Plants it, are amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's kind of, yeah, they're pretty resilient. I remember when I was studying up for organismal, because we're teaching kind of in a similar, uh, same class, I had to study my plants up again, and I was like, God, these things are really, like, resilient and, like, really oh, advanced, yeah. and they have their own immune systems, and... They're super fun. Um, the train spreading reminds me of COVID-19 right now spreading, basically, and just being like, zip, like, there you go. Um, yeah, because yeah, st- we're still walking Scout all the time, and sometimes, uh, like, other people are walking their dog, and I was like, yep, we got to go all the way over to the other side. I'm social distancing 30 feet because yeah. you can't pet my dog. And I was I was actually joking with my, um, uh, my molecular class that a couple children tried to come up and pet Scout because she's cute. And I was like, no, no, shoe disease bags, carriers, get away, <laughs> don't pet this dog. But she was, she, she was okay, she'll be fine. She gets so many walks now, so it was yeah. good. Um, 
But yeah, so I, I always like to relate and like learn more about ecology because it's in an evolution directly because there are so many mechanisms that we never get to get to in introduction. And thus, the ones that I usually learn the best are, are the introduction ones. And then I just apply those. But learning from you has been like really fun because I get to see um, just how quickly niche and environmental changes can change the environment on its head for these specialist type cells in a lot of cases for me when I'm studying something like cancer and say, no wonder these certain um, like stromal cells that fight the tumor just go away when the tumor basically eats all their food around the area or like kills off all their protectors. Um, and we do something similar and I've had episodes on this about CAR T and how CAR T cells are essentially supercharged genetic immune cells that go in and hunt the cancer but and I was thinking before this podcast I was because uh, we were kind of talking about it in another conversation I was having I was like they're really hard to breed in captivity these T cells that we're like modulating and I was like that's kind of the thing I was thinking of is and then like re-releasing and hoping that we can modulate the ecology of the environment and like mm-hmm. it rarely works obviously <laughs> we're, we're usually not um in control of the environment as much as we'd like to be so it was definitely interesting. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, this is fun. I think everybody on this podcast already knows what I do, so I won't bore everybody. And you can always Google and listen to the other episodes if you want. Because um, the other half of this podcast was kind of going to be like kind of an open session for us to talk about biology education um, and kind of what some questions that our students had. So do you want to... I'm trying to think. We could first address the... Um, one of the big questions that we get since we teach at kind of a smaller college is where do you strike the balance of getting up and doing a pure lecture versus how many times do you break things up with different activities, for example? Um, and the two of us, we probably, we have different strategies, but I think we probably almost exist on the same percentage, mate. I hope. Mm-hmm. I hope I don't lecture too much. I feel like I do mm-hmm. sometimes, so... <laughs> It's okay. I I talk a lot. We're on a podcast, so I I, I, I it has to go somewhere into the air, basically. <laughs> yeah, I think um, for me, I really try to think back to my coursework that I've had. I mean, even in graduate school too, mm-hmm. kind of what professors were doing that made their courses really engaging and made me want to prepare ahead of time and be you know per, you know participate fully in class and those were the professors that definitely had kind of that balance point between not just like word vomiting towards me all the time uh, but also you know doing activities and I think it also provides a way for students to learn kind of in this group setting but then also I think like you're saying you know like the small group work um, give students the chance to kind of build that confidence. So sometimes I'll, you know, have a worksheet or questions up on the board and I'll kind of have some breakout time because I want them to talk amongst each other. And then I bring it back in because I'm hoping the chance for them to kind of talk with a fo- you know, a few folks around them, either, you know, to get on the page or, you know, further explain something that maybe have a little bit better grasp on than the person next to them. And then, you know, maybe that person you know, took something else away that they could, um, you know, teach the other one. And then my hope is that, you know, when we come back together, that kind of confidence boost of like, oh, yeah, like we did kind of understand the same thing um, allows people to participate more in that full lecture. Because I know it is um, kind of scary, you know, and at times when you're, when you're in a room of like 40 folks to necessarily speak up. Um, and so I think for me, finding the balance between lecture, because some of this stuff really, it is just kind of lecturing in my head is like, the way that I learned it and so I think that that's kind of a good base but I really think the other experiences are necessary to not just get the 
information in one out here and out the other, but actually keep it in there, you know, um, by engaging in those hands-on or whatever sort of um, experiences we're kind of cocking um, during our lecture times. Yeah. And I, and I definitely, um, I definitely agree with like that time when like getting people together. I think it's definitely different in a bigger class. Like I didn't, I didn't know that the Gustavus like intro would be only 35 students per group. Mm -hmm. And so I think I, I think a lot of the time some people were puzzled, like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> I thought this was going to be a big, massive class. Um, but having even this, like, a small conversation, you might see that somebody perceives something different and you can perceive, like, a new association with something that maybe both of you are encountering for the first time. But seeing it from two different directions may make you think, like, I guess I never really considered it that way, but maybe this is more disease-based or maybe this is more, like, macro-based. Maybe this is better to look at as a large system or, you know... Because I did have a lot of, you know, we both, well, everybody has a lot of students that are really interested in healthcare, and so I, I try to relate it to that, but at the same time, I also don't want to send people too into too dark of a black box of, like, this is complicated and that's why it's exciting. Um, yeah. And I, I think I struggle with that sometimes in the molecular class, where I'm just like, this is super exciting because it's super complicated, and we're still mm-hmm. figuring out, and that's exciting, but that also doesn't give um, the amount of... Uh, you know, wonder that I do want to have with some of this stuff. Cause to me, a lot of that is, is like, Hey, we don't know how this works. For example, like this is super mm-hmm. exciting. I'm, you know, it's, yeah. ter- it's terrifying that we don't know how, um, uh, it's terrifying that we don't know how anesthetic works, for example, <laughs> like even just the simplest things. Um, yeah. but like the more that we find out about epigenetics or the more that we find out about how the world is reacting to the changes that we're putting it through, which is probably twice as scary. Um, mm-hmm. which doesn't make mm-hmm. me feel good ever. I remember, I think one of the biggest interdisciplinary things with climate change that I ever encountered was that when the Arctic unfreezes, viruses are going to come out of the peat that are still just DNA pieces, and they're going to start infecting things that they haven't infected for a thousand years. No immune system is ready for them, like all this terrible stuff. And I was just like, oh, shoot, okay, this is <laughs> yeah. this is another way that we can, you know, we can have our morning coffee and just be terrified again but yeah right now I mean yeah I think that's the hard thing too with the content is like there's so much like like I want to foster curiosity in that you're saying like oh yeah there's all the stuff we don't know and I think it's so crazy sometimes the stuff we don't know of like well it's it's you know it's written this way in a textbook or we're just told this forever but then when you actually sit and question it I'm like well what why why is this yeah the way so I really like talking about kind of the history of things too or trying to Mm -hmm. highlight people that have kind of been forgotten in the history of you know these breakthroughs and yeah. stuff but it's also yeah. hard to not burden students you know like we are always in a panic you know about <laughs> uh changes in the world and everything going on and so sometimes it is hard trying to find that balance of like i'm trying to spark curiosity and i'm also trying to not like worry people more than they <laughs> I know, are right? but like if it's something that's interesting like it's okay to question it it's okay to you know get engaged with it you know beyond whatever we're telling you like if you're really interested like go do your research you know like just start looking up articles like talk to folks that can help you like learn more about it yeah Um, but going back to the question I think was it was the question actually asking like the breakdown of it because I feel like I would say I'm probably like 60 to 75 percent lecture and then I'd say like 40 to 25 versus like or for like hands-on stuff um but in my courses I had a really big adjustment from my first semester to now because in the first semester I was teaching two days a week 80 minute 
sections. Um, and now I'm teaching four days a week, 50 minutes. And so that was a really big adjustment. And so looking back on the fall, I wish I had done more of kind of those breakout sessions or activities. And so that's one thing I'm hoping to change in the future and mm-hmm. whatever classes I'm teaching um, is building in more of that time right. um, to, to do those sorts of things. But I know even you sometimes like have students prepare stuff ahead of time. So it's like sometimes I count that into like that right. non-lecture component. Yeah. Like if I'm asking you to read a short article before you come to class, like to me that almost falls into that like non-lecture category because it's like beyond textbook material, but I'm still asking you to like read it. Right. And that's, um, and that, and that's, I'm probably in the same range with the 60 to 75% depending on the material or the class. Um, uh-huh. And that's kind of the tough part is um and this is tough you know any students listening this is tough for all of your professors is well some of them don't put as much effort in and they're just gonna read from it i've heard of the big schools where they read from the textbook we don't do that but even with the lecture um it's hard because like when there's really hard stuff coming up i feel very like nervous about not lecturing about it and putting it in class i feel very nervous that that's not gonna get the like selection it needs but I know that I can't just do that all the time. So you really have to like call your shots as far as what you think is going to be the most pertinent information like that you're going to be up there explaining and hope that that crosses over so that when you build a bigger picture, those foundations and scaffolds are there. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely have talked with like some of my students and I've always kind of broached the idea like how much material, for example, could we flip the classroom with? Could I give you guys two, three videos that you would watch And then we would, like, discuss and, like, do a couple things in class. And then, but would I know that you actually did them, unfortunately? And so that's, like, always the hard thing is, like, as your professors, we would love if we never lectured. And you guys would, like, you know, just, like, watch videos and read the textbook. But that's not the way that everybody learns either. That's the other thing is, like, you know, lecture does get sometimes a bad rap. And it's like, oh, this is boring. It's still been working for quite a while. So there are very active dynamics of lecture that, like, make it a good delivery system. Um... But I have had those, like, fun debates with some of my students, like, could you guys just take the test if we just, like, discussed implications and wrote all class? And some of them are like, yeah, definitely. And they're like, what are you talking about? Others are like, no. Like, yeah. you need to explain mitochondria to me because they are complex, even though they're fun. <laughs> um, I think, too, you know. like, you know, you're talking about, like, the foundations. Like, I'm, you know, both of us are you know, a part of introductory classes, but also teaching, like, kind of upper-level classes, and so kind of the difference, like, I see more of kind of the non-lecture stuff for the upper classes, because by that point, students have had those foundations in the previous courses, mm-hmm. um, but I think the other thing, too, is I'm constantly having to remind myself of, oh, yeah, I've been working with phylogenies for a decade, mm-hmm. but for some people, this is the first time they're interacting with them, and so it's always great to slow your, uh, you know, passionate professor down, you know, yeah. if they're going too fast, and it's because we're so interested and engaged in what we're doing, and, you know, for us, we've gotten so comfortable talking about these things and teaching about them that sometimes it's hard for us to really step back and be like, oh, yeah, if I was learning this for the first time or trying to put myself back in that kind of headspace helps me, Um but it's always important if you feel like, you know, your professor's leaving everyone in the dust just because it's something that they've no, I know, you know, lectured yeah. on for 20 years. Like, slow them down. We're not, yeah, we're not trying to sound smart. We're probably just excited in that case. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that, because that's what I did. I think I've done it before whenever, whenever I get the chance 
to talk about a cancer anecdote, I think I obliterate my classes every time. They're like, did he just say the cancer cell eats itself? Did he just say that uh, macrophages get zombified by these? And what's a macrophage? I think that I always forget, like, when I was hearing these things, I had, like, all the foundations set, and that's, like, when light bulbs started going off for me. So I always have to, like, keep careful track of, make sure that we are on track when it comes to, um, you know, what I'm about to talk about. And I always, like I said, that's why I think, like, evolution ecology might be some of my most straightforward stuff when I'm teaching it, even though it's not my field, because I'm like, this is exciting because this is exciting. Like, I just learned this, or relearned this, and saw this again like a month ago and I'm excited about it again. So we're going to be excited about that, not something <laughs> super advanced. And that's why I always like wish that I could, um, you know, I'm glad that we shared the office cause then I could ask you about stuff. Like I learned about George Foster Wallace from you and I was like, Oh my God, this poor guy, like he like discovered everything. So, so when we try to find that balance, we're definitely trying, we're not trying to force you to talk to your neighbor. We are literally trying to help your brain undergo something a little different. And that's good for the brain to see a situation in a new light. And, you know, we always try and I think both of our J terms did a good job, you know, integrating like some ethics and conceptual questions as it related to the material, because that's, you know, a two hour class or a three hour class is going to take some time. Maybe you do need some time to discuss and sit and think for a while. <laughs> this can be tough. Um, so I think uh, I also got a question from a couple of my students on how introductory labs are kind of done. And... I had this group of students be like, can't you just trust us and we'll just like run experiments? And I was like, I obviously trust all of you, but there are definitely like certain things that it helps to have a couple repetitions with, like gathering data and then interpreting data. And I don't, um, and we're never wanting to like belittle you or pretending that you have training wheels on, even if you are ready and you do feel like you are past certain stuff then use this time to really get like an advanced handle and start thinking about, hey, how would I actually apply this to a question that I have, for example? You know, how would I apply this in a scenario if I want to look into a certain protein that is associated with Alzheimer's? Would I, you know, what kind of patients would I test? What kind of things could I do in a cell line, for example? Um, we, I think 102, or at least the, the Gustavus version of 102, that's the first time that we put students in front of living things and... I always think that's really exciting. Um, so I think that gets kind of that real stuff coming in. And I think... Well, I mean, we had yeah. cockroaches in one Oh my God, I forgot about the cockroaches. Yeah, so for, for everybody <laughs> listening off context for the Bio 101 Classic Estavis, you have to handle these hissing cockroaches as part of like a CO2 respiration lab. I got to be 100% honest, like I've handled bugs before in some of my research. They were terrifying. So I went over to the pen and was like, okay, like, I'm not going to show you how to handle one of these. Like, you're going to jump in and do it, students. That was purely because I was terrified of these things. And they hissed at me and they, I think they, one of them I'm convinced bit me. I don't think, maybe not, but still, I was very upset. And so <laughs> that was tough. I totally forgot that. I blacked that out, I guess. Um, but tr trust us when, when we do the bio labs in 101 and 102, those are... Those are exercises that I think when it comes down to it are very good examples of how much you put in is going to be how much you get out in a lot of cases. Um, you know, some of them are tough, tougher because a lot of them, some of them are simulations in a lot of cases, but that's okay. You know, you don't, you, you'll, a lot of you maybe will get to a point where you are dealing with environments or cells or mice or patients someday 
and you want to have practice. You want to be you want to be able to remember some training from when it was low stakes. Like that's I've told some of you that's the big reason I don't work with mice is that I make mistakes in lab and I never want to have to be like, all right, these eight mice, they're done. I never want to have to make that choice. And I never luckily have had to make that choice because I've kind of avoided making that choice, which is nice. Um, not everybody has that luxury, but remember that the these training steps are not there to, you know, put you down, basically. We're just, you know, kind of showing you some ropes so that everybody emerges after, let's say, these two classes and then jumps into something big like the cell and molecular class or like 202 and EEB, for example, where you are going to get tasked with making an experiment, for example. You're going to get tasked with finding that data, you know, asking a question, finding data, making a conclusion, and interpreting what that conclusion means. And um, and I think that Gustavus is a pretty good fast track when it comes to, uh, you know, getting students on that path. I think even as a freshman at Carleton, I, I think the labs were really well, obviously super well done. I don't know if personally I was ready to be in such an advanced lab yet, which is so bad that I'm a biology professor now, but I definitely don't think that I personally had that, that level. I don't know if maturity is the right, right word, but I definitely didn't appreciate how much work went into those labs when I was an undergrad. That's, oh yeah, that's another thing that professors love doing. When I was in school, quote, this, the, I should have taken advantage of all these things. So you guys should be studying and being involved. Don't go watch Netflix, please, basically. <laughs> But, I mean, we have that luxury of, you know, wanting you to do that now. And we understand how, we remember how hard college is. Trust me, it's, there's a lot flying around. So, it's okay. Um, but, I, yeah, you go ahead. I, I think one of the other things, too, that maybe, and again, every school is going to be different, but at least at Gustavus, like, you know, people start out with 101, but doesn't mean they're going to go to 102. Like, some people right. went down different routes. And so I think 101 is used as a way to, like, build confidence, you know, mm -hmm. especially for folks that haven't, you know, depending on what school system you were a part of, like, some of these tools and equipment, like, you might not have used before, you know. And so for those students that have had that experience and feel like, oh, it's so slow or all that, like, take it as a time to also kind of help your fellow classmates, too, you know, and be able to help bring them up and build their confidence with, you know, these tools or whatever equipment is being used that they might not have had experience with if you had, um, instead of viewing it as a like, oh, can't we just, you know, run off, <laughs> you know, like, um, we want to be inclusive to everyone. Um, and I think especially for me, that was important because I was uh, the first uh, person in my family to go to college. And I, you know, at least in my high school, like I had biology in, how was it, ninth grade? And then I, or no, biology was 10th grade. Um, and then I didn't have it until my sophomore year at Gustavus. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's another thing with biology is you have students coming in that maybe just had AP bio, but then there are some students that haven't had it for a couple of years or their last bio class was like human anatomy in college or something right. or in high school, sorry. And so there's just such a wide range. I think it's our chance, um, you know, at the institutional level to try and get everyone kind of situated to be able to set up for success, you know, in whatever next course um, they're in. Right. But I do feel like sometimes there's so much like equipment that's thrown in that it seems <laughs> a little overwhelming, you know, to keep track of whatever sensors and stuff. And right. so sometimes I, I view their approach less is more <laughs> because, you know, in the future labs, you can build on that, but it's really important to get the solid foundation first before you throw everything in the kitchen sink at, right, at definitely. students. 
I remember, I think me and you would probably be an undergrad when they had the spectrophotometers that were just like so bad to work with. And that's how so many of our labs were with spectrophotometers that were just like the worst things on the planet. Like if it was a little, if the thing was a little filmy, it wouldn't read. If you put it in the wrong way, it would break. I just remember at Carleton, whenever I saw the spectrophotometers come out, I was just like, oh my God, today's going to be so bad. (laughs) And I think that's the hard part too, is like, it's immediately putting up these kind of walls for students of like, oh my gosh, it's too hard. I can't figure out this piece of equipment, but it's like, you could be understanding everything else in the process and you could explain it to me and I know you're on board and it's not your fault that the machine's not working properly. (laughs) And so I think that's my frustration too, having all these, you know, oodles of fancy you know, tools to use sometimes is it kind of muddles the confidence or the ability that students might feel that they have for things just because they're not able to get, you know, this machine to work. And, oh, if I can't get this machine to work, then, like, I just need to not be a bio major. Right. Like, <laughs> that's that's not true. Because it's weird because <laughs> so. it, like, yeah, because you get better at it in grad school. Like, I was actually super afraid of lab in grad school. I was like, all right, here we go. And then it was like, mm-hmm. okay, like, you're going to need to learn these techniques. And, like, that is usually, like, a scary, like, 48 hours, mm-hmm. like, when you're about to perform your first technique on something. Um, yeah, I was doing, like, the phenochloroform, yeah. like, extractions. That was oh, yeah. terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I think uh, we had a couple other questions, but I think let's focus on the last ones. And because it's good, because I think we're actually, yeah, we actually, I talked so much. You guys could speed through this at 2x um, motion, and you can still hear my voice pretty much the same. <laughs> Um, so let's see, there's three, there's kind of two questions that are connected. Um, Mm -hmm. how did you become a professor? And remember, we're just visiting, so we're not like real professors yet, (laughs) Yeah. but that's okay. We're not real. Yeah. We're just like, kind of like fake, like pretend professors. Don't, we, you still pay full tuition for us though. Um, (laughs) how do you best prepare? And then how do you best prepare as a professor, especially in this first year? Um, and then we'll address the final one after that. Um, so first question was how, like, how did we come to where we are now? Um, so I, I've always enjoyed education. Um, I've had a a lot of years of experience with environmental education. Um, and then as a part of my graduate program, I also created, um, and ran, uh, outreach event series for science education, connecting, uh, researchers and businesses. So I would have researchers come to the businesses at night and share their research and students and community members and their colleagues would come listen. And so I ran that for four years. And so for me, like, I really like connecting resources and getting people interested and engaged with things. Um, and so I was like, I know I'm interested in teaching and I'm still trying to find where that balance is of exactly what sort of role do I want, um, as an educator. Um, but honestly for me, like this position, I was, like really scared to apply um and I was like oh I don't know um but I I wanted to put my name in um and so it's been really nice to come back and be teaching classes that I took number one I have a lot of my binders from when I took the classes so like I have my exams (laughs) I took um so um you know again things have changed in the last 10 years or 13 years or whatever but um I think just seeking out the opportunities that get you really excited. Um, and this was one, uh, just cause my, you know, past connection, uh, but even just seeing other job postings too, just picking out the parts that really are interesting to me that are education related is exciting yeah. um, to kind of see what possibilities exist. Oh, awesome. And I, <clears throat> I think I, um, 
I had I was kind of like a different student. Like I I've talked with some of my students about this. How I'm I'm very bad at, at absorbing content in the immediate future. And so Carlton's on trimesters, so the classes happen in ten weeks. That's not actually a recipe for success, unfortunately. So as much as I would love like talking about stuff and was very still interested for like years after classes, I was always like, shoot, I didn't really apply that on the exam as much as I wanted to. <laughs> Even though now I like am very interested in these ideas still. Um, so for my path as far, I think it was two main classes that really, like when light bulbs started going off, I was like, oh my gosh, like there is this entire world to still be opened up in biology that I'm just always excited about. Um, one was my genetics professor at Carleton, Stefan Zweifel, and then another was Debbie Walzer-Kuntz um, at, at Carleton, and she does science education and virology. And in both those classes, Stefan was very good at, I don't know if he was tricking us or just making us, like, like wowing us with discussion, and, like, he would, like, pull the sheet from under us and be like, did you actually know that, like, this is how holiday junction and DNA looks, or did you actually know that, like certain things can get controlled by other genes in this manner and i would i would always just be like there's so much more to this isn't there like he he has a whole like valley of stuff we could talk about this stuff it's so exciting um but i remember one specifically in a seminar class on virology that debbie was teaching and we were all in groups studying hiv primary lit papers and i remember looking up with with my group and i remember i kind of looked at them and i was like are we all thinking the same thing we looked at debbie and it's like it was the first time that the papers were starting to come out that said, with this combination of retroviral drugs, a patient can exist with HIV and they're not going to die. And that was the first time, like, we all looked at Debbie and were like, did we, is this person winning? Like, this isn't a death sentence anymore. And she's like, that's how we win. And we were all just floored. And to like, to have, I was lucky that like, that's what we were reading about at the time. I remember the paper was from 2011 and it was um, 2012 that year. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. This is so interesting. And to this day, I'm still so interested in viruses. Not currently, unfortunately. Now I'm just upset that <laughs> we canceled our year. Um, but everybody should stay safe. Um, but I remember with education, I always thought, like, I want to do what they do. Like, that was, that was awesome. And have those, like, kind of those connections with students and, like, seeing what means something to students and how you can connect that to something exciting. Um... I had a really long drives back from Carleton to back to Colorado in between all my school breaks. And my dad and I were talking on one of these drives because it's super late and we're just like, you know, mulling about stuff. And he's like, so what are you going to do? And I was like, well, like, I kind of want to go to med school, kind of maybe, or I want, I, you know, I really wanted to be a veterinarian actually, but I graduated without any animal experience. So that was a big thumbs down. Um, and then he's like, well, what about like, if you studied biology more, like you really are so excited on these drives and you tell me everything that you studied throughout the term. And like, it always seems like you get more and more excited and more and more things connect. And he's not a science person. And so it was super fun. Um, and I was like, you know, if I'm going to write like a personal statement for one of those three things, this is probably going to be the easiest one to write. And that's still what I tell my students is what's, what would be the easiest personal statement that makes you unique for this type of like, you know, school, career, anything and then I always ask him this this question, and maybe this is mean, but would you do that profession for, let's say, $20,000 a year? And if some of them for medicine, they're like, hey, no. And I was like, well, then remember, like, there, there has to be that big mega motivation for those years when you're in residency or you're, you know, struggling through a library and you're just like, oh, my God, like, 
you know, that motivation has to be very intrinsic. And hopefully what our job is as professors is to help you find that. And, you know, I had professors that helped me find that. And so someday maybe I can help some people along the way. And that was, that was fun. I definitely still really miss a lot of the times with my research sometimes, like obviously that I don't directly do. And I think because it's very medical associated, I do know that a, a return to that's possible someday because I, I feel like I could still have that effect there. So so we'll see how things shake out this year. That's still up in the air for all my normal listeners. We'll see if this becomes more regular again if I'm not teaching. Um, yeah, and I think like you know. you're saying, you know, you want to kind of give back. And that's something I think about too is like I had really influential mentors mm-hmm. and I saw, you know, the ability they had to communicate these really cool things to people and get people interested and cared. But also knowing that they cared about me, I think was mm-hmm. a really big part. And so I take mentorship really seriously um, like you do as well. And so... I think that's another reason why I like these sorts of education roles is because you are able to kind of make people see that they're capable of a lot more than they think they are. Um, Because I always think sometimes that like I should have been someone probably that didn't make it and didn't drop out. You know, I'm, I'm not an A student, you know, I struggled in school, but that struggle helped me, you know, become more resilient. And so I never want students to think, Oh, just because I'm not getting every single A possible, it doesn't mean you can't you know, continue down that path. No, definitely. But again, your background in like, you know, medical sort of related things, maybe sometimes it is a little bit more pressured, but um, I just want people to know that it is is okay to quote unquote fail a little bit along the way as you're figuring it out and um, have that kind of intrinsic motivation, like you're saying, is really important. No, and I think that's always good to like have those experiences where you kind of know what it's like to lose and get back up again. Um, Because you don't always get that through academics sometimes where it's like, sometimes you know you can't really pick yourself up in the same way or at least you haven't learned how and like and it's also hard for me to even say that you learn how to not give up you know I don't know if you can even put that um something so powerful towards how to just learn that I know that you know I had supports you know systems in the same way that um yeah I mean I've never really admitted this but I I definitely struggled at Carlton there was a lot of times where I was like this place is this place beat me I remember I talked to my parents about that I was like this it's too much. Like it's so I'm falling behind I'm this. And so I always try and remember that, um, with, with our students and just remember, like you can get through this. Like if you believe in it, cause we believe in you. And I, I remember going back to class that Monday after like, you know, a hard weekend or something and being like, they're still here, you know, they're not going to give up on me and neither, neither should I. Um, so that was, that was exciting. Um, Dang, yeah. Yeah, school's tough. We don't forget that, trust us. <laughs> and graduate school's tough, too. You said, hey. It's still c- tough for us. Yeah, <laughs> On yeah. On side of things, it's yeah. still tough. <laughs> um, so as far as how we prepared, though, uh, yeah, at a med center, it was weird. I didn't have any undergrads to teach. I had to, like, go email people in departments and be like, can I teach one of your classes, please? Um, and so I gradually, like, piece by piece, started building a little bit of this teaching resume. And then... Um, uh, Larissa Wolfenbarger at UNO offered me to teach microbiology and I was like I've never taught microbiology but I'm so thrilled and I learned microbiology in a month and we taught it and we had a great class and um but your your resume with teaching is so much like bigger because you like started an organization and stuff I should have been doing that but um <laughs> one, one of the things that we've talked about I've shared with you is that I you know I, I did have a research mentor that was not very thrilled about teaching and we had conversations about that that we never came to an agreement on and 
and that's okay. And I respect him a ton. And I learned tons from him. Probably one of the smartest people I've ever met to this day. Possibly the smartest. And it's, you know, but it's still something that we could never really agree on about priorities as a grad student. And I understand where he's coming from. Um, you know, given that he was mentoring me to be a scientist and I was, you know, still very interested in teaching. And so that was, that was definitely a different dynamic to say the least sometimes. But, um, yeah. yeah. Um, I think with like the actual decisions of like preparing material and like kind of organization of a class, it's kind of, I don't know if students know this, but generally like if you're teaching like a core course, you know, it's not just one professor, there's multiple. So there's kind of behind the scenes things that happen, you know, prior to the semester starting where there's like a certain order of things, you know, that we're covering and we kind of have to have some consistency as to what's going on, but then there is flexibility too. And so something I always try to do and maybe my students will disagree or tell me that I'm failing at this but I never want them to leave my class being like well that was a waste like what did what was that for what did I learn like I want there to be at least you know one or two or three tangible things that they're learning that are actually like applicable to either things that they've noticed in the world around them previously and now they're like aha now I know like what that actually you know like why that is the way it is or something that gets them interested in something they want to like talk about with their friends with you know that's like to me a huge success as an educator um but I think yeah all the experiences that I had it's like I want people to know it's not like we just land in (laughs) these positions you know I graduated in 2010 so it's like 10 years of things led me to this point now and that had to do with like you know I did two years of AmeriCorps getting a master's degree starting my PhD so it's like you know there's steps along the way um but all of those steps are also full of amazing opportunities that you get that maybe in the moment you're not realizing how important they're going to be but looking back you know looking back everything makes way more sense in kind of line of you know as you're trucking through life and the different jobs you're having it's like it makes way more sense (laughs) looking backwards than if someone were to tell you these are the steps you're going to take oh i know yeah Um, that was yeah that was definitely like kind of the, the fate of that so like larissa was the one that offered me the the teaching position for intro and then micro at, at UNO. And that probably happened because I took a class that a colleague recommended at UNO that was a teaching class. And then she was leading it. And then one day she was like, Hey, you're like a PhD candidate. So you can technically teach this. Um, would you be interested? And I was like, Oh my God. Yes. Like, this is so exciting. We finally did it. Um, so it's so, yeah, you're right though. Cause that makes me think of that, like that moment, how, cause I definitely wasn't thinking of taking that class. Um, mm-hmm it was not high my priority. I was like, ah, I'm going to graduate in a year. I've already taken a teaching class, but I learned a ton again. And so that goes to show we're always right. We're always making you learn stuff and never, never wasting time. But, but yeah, whenever we prepare, um, it's very collaborative. I would say that not only the two of us work together, but we were very quick to go to some of the senior faculty and say, here are the strategies we're using. Um, you know, what do you think? And, um, cause we, I, I agree that I always tried to make that class worth what um you know students are paying for at Gustavus because I've seen what students pay for at large universities where you're not getting a lot of attention and you're not getting there's not a lot of care behind those classes and I'm I'm hoping that you know obviously as I get better as an educator or you know maybe someday as a scientist we'll see that um that that effort is uh that effort's always going to be there and that there are going to be tangible results that you got something out of the class and that it was valuable um so we're always trying for that. If you do have a professor yeah. that's not trying for that, then, well, then that's that's a problem, I'd say. <laughs> I don't like that. But, I mean, again, there's always different styles, though, too. So maybe that's that's what it is. But, 
Awesome. But I think too, when yeah. we're like deciding topics, it's like obviously yeah. it, we're gonna kind of gravitate towards the things that really interest us and excite us. So sometimes like the articles I have people read or the videos or whatever seem maybe very out there sometimes, but I'm hoping they're able to kind of wrap their head around like what is the connection to class and why the heck is Katie asking me to watch <laughs> this? Um, because it's really exciting for us to be able to, you know, teach about and you know learn with them because I feel like I'm always learning too and so it's I think it's good for students to know that you know it is a collaborative process even if it doesn't seem that way like if I get good feedback from you on the activities and the topics and that helps me see that you know you're liking it and learning from it and I'll keep using it but if you're telling me that oh this really didn't work then it's good for me to also take that in and Keenan I'm sure you get that sort of Oh yeah, kind of feedback from students too. It's it's important. We want to be doing a good job. <laughs> like we care. Yeah, definitely come up to either of us and are like, ah, oh, this isn't working. Yeah, don't be afraid of ever coming up to your professors and being like, this isn't working so much for me, or like I didn't understand that part. They we are excited to help. Like trust us. Um, you know that's not going to happen in every grad school or clinician or anything. Yeah, sometimes people are impatient. I get that. You're at Gustavus, though. You're at a smaller school where, like, that's what we are excited to do every day. That's, like, the best part of our day is when we can talk with students, honestly. Um, and that's I why... I mean, the last two yeah. weeks have been so hard not seeing oh. our students, like, and not even interacting with them or it anything. Sucks. Like, it's weird. We get to know you and we care about you. And so it's, like, it's hard, you know? <laughs> I, was having, I was having so much fun with both of my 102 labs because I'm not lecturing in 102. So it's kind of just been fun to be like, what are we going to do this week? Like, this is going to be so cool. And like, I, I, there were very little consequences for me just being like, this is lab, hooray. Like, and so, and, it, and it's obviously going to be okay. Like with everything, like, I love the tree project. Like, I think it's great. I think it's hilarious that you chose a dead tree when you were I know, yeah. So I need to awful. email my students and just be like, make sure you pick a live tree for the oh, phonology no. report. Because I did not. <laughs> I do I do have a couple students that are not in an area with deciduous buds. And mm. so I have one in my backyard. So I'm just going to take like pictures and email them every day and be like, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be like 4 two twenty twenty tree yeah, large picture and then like some buds and yeah. you're gonna you're gonna be able to measure and get observable data so that'll be good um so we'll see but no thanks so much for talking with us or talking with me katie i don't know if it's us i don't know if anybody listens to this podcast anymore I, we'll, we'll see what happens when we light up the uh when we light up the listens we'll see and um but we just yeah this this year teaching has been amazing and it's fun and like we love what we do and that's so know that you're in a place where you have professors that are very excited about coming to you know coming to work every day like it's it's very hardly work for me um you know it's very much how I feel when I'm doing like clinical lab science where it's like this is so exciting um you know this is real difference making stuff and but at the end of the day like I love talking with students like it's the best yeah so and and I think too because it's both of our first years like there is a little bit of that like students feeling like guinea pigs I'm sure and they are you know we're learning <laughs> this yeah. is our first attempt at everything and so yeah next year I'll do some things a little bit differently and five years from now wherever I end up like I'll maybe do things differently too and so yeah um I think that's one of the things about the workload this year was big you know we're yeah. kind of we were busy things and making it <laughs> we were yeah I but, remember yeah my my wife commented that like one thing Carlton prepares you for is like you are never not working at Carlton because of the trimesters yeah. basically and I remember talking to my wife Emma and was just like this is like what it feels like this I haven't felt like this since Carlton where it's like it's never stopping 
like the work, mm-hmm. but it's, I mean, it's obviously awesome because it's all from a point of like, I just want to make this better. I want to make something new that's going to be more exciting or more, you know, engaging and we're going to learn more and we're going to, you know, be more fulfilled in that case. So that would be awesome. So, um, yeah, it's awesome. Well, thank you, Keenan. I meant yeah. to ask earlier. Um, so I do have a Twitter account, so I don't know if you post this on your Twitter. I don't know. Where I will you post actually. This, yeah. I but haven't used if that you yet. Yeah. tag me, I don't know what it is. You should retweet me. I, I'll have more than like three followers. I think my cousin and you follow me and like another <laughs> person I know from Mayo. So we'll, we'll maybe so get that out. So if folks do want to contact me, they can contact me on, um, Twitter, so if they look for that. Okay. And I'll, um, yeah, I think, you search for me on Twitter. It's just my dumb picture, and there's only one Keenan Harder in the world, so you'll find it. Um, and that's fine. And I'll post scout pictures of my Pomeranian scout, and you guys can meet scout for the first time. She is beautiful. I did have a molecular biology student, one of the advanced students, um, he did his journal club on the Merle phenotype in dogs, and how, like, the melanin gene in dogs gets disrupted by an intron that gets interrupted by a little transposable element that inserts itself too many times. And that's how it's like messes with the amount of genes. And so that's why scout looks like a little patchy mud ball. And so <laughs> don't let her, don't tell scout that I said that. But yeah. She'll be offended. <laughs> I know she does get such a, she's so happy about quarantine. Trust me. Everybody's talking about their pets. Like, what are you still doing here? Scout's like, this is great. Well, like, see, I have a cat and I feel yeah. like I'm disturbing her like napping <laughs> routine for, you know, the 20 hours of the day, but <laughs> oh, it'll be good. Oh, cool. Well, again, thank you so much, Katie. Yeah, this was super fun. Thank you for the questions. No, yeah, and thank you, yeah, students for questions. Yeah, this was fun. I I wish we had more. We could do it again if we we end up with more. So actually, yeah, if you have, and I'll send this in the email to follow up. Uh, If you have any follow-up questions, like we're always glad to do another or just kind of post some some answers and, you know, have a Q&A. But in any case, thanks so much for listening. And uh, this concludes a very special fun episode. Thanks for listening. Bye.